in alignment with the 12 traditions of Marijuana Anonymous, and so that we may never divert from our primary purpose, Marijuana Anonymous states the following disclaimer. Marijuana Anonymous does not endorse Dr. Seppala or his expressed opinions. The statements made and the opinions expressed by Dr. Seppala and the MA members in this recording are solely their own. Dr. Seppala has provided consent to Marijuana Anonymous to record this session, share his name, and this recording with the public. Dr. Seppala was not provided with any financial compensation for speaking. Uh, I'm Marv, and I'm an addict and alcoholic. And um, I just celebrated last month 47 years. Uh, And I wrote uh, a doctor's opinion about marijuana addiction uh, for the new edition of Life and Hope at the request of some people uh, in MA. And and they they had no clue who who I really was or what my background was. Uh, But it was just a treat to, to write that. And I had actually written a piece kind of like that for for some friends who wrote another book that they they tried to kind of do an updated version of AA's big book and and I wrote it and then uh that they took it and and they kind of altered it so they said it had to speak to people at a seventh grade education and by the time they they changed it. It hardly said anything. So, so it was wonderful to write something uh, that I could just talk about what it's really like and what and the problems as they exist. And, and um, but at the time, they told me they didn't want me to mention that I was in recovery. So it doesn't mention that, which was a little unfortunate. But that that's a fine. You know, that, that's how they wanted it for the book. Um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to call it. Uh, another doctor's opinion because just to distinguish it from the first one but to reveal that it is you know it's a historical piece as well um and you know so i dropped out of high school uh, i was disowned by my family um so my addiction started really young at, at about 12 uh and i ended up in treatment at 17 and finally got, and this is in you know, 1974. And then in, I didn't stay sober, didn't stay abstinent. I started, first thing I went back to was marijuana. And later the, in 1975 at 19, I got sober uh, in AA in Rochester, Minnesota, um, near where I grew up. And um, and I, 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 in spite of dropping out of high school, I ended up getting a job at the Mayo Clinic in a research lab and was influenced by all these doctors from around the world who came to do fellowships there while I was in my early recovery. And I decided I really liked what they did and wanted to be a doctor too. And then, and I told my sponsor this and, and he said, you know, Marv, if it's God's will, it'll happen. And apparently it was, I mean, <laughs> it somehow happened and, and uh, I still can't believe it. On my one year anniversary, I started my first college class and I, I went to medical school planning to be a cardiac surgeon because the guy who influenced me the most was a cardiac surgeon. Um, and when I saw how many people were in the hospital for addiction, related 
problems, anywhere from you know, getting their a foot cut off because of nicotine dependence um, or psychosis from marijuana, hallucinogens, whatever. I started complaining about it at, at the AA meeting I attended. MA didn't exist then, and there was no NA where I got sober. And I used anything and everything. I really didn't discern. So, so the I say I'm an addict and alcoholic, but um, when I saw all these people with problems, and we weren't evaluating them, we weren't diagnosing them, we weren't referring them to treatment. And I started complaining about this at my home group every week. And after a few weeks of this, two of the doctors that were at the meeting, the only two doctors at the meeting took me aside and said, Marv, you've got to quit bitching about this and do something about it. And and that's what I did. I, I decided to go into psychiatry um, and I did an addiction fellowship. So I specialized in addiction and I've devoted my career to that. I, I was for about 20 years, the chief medical officer of Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation. And I, I left that position in December last year to take kind of a sabbatical and take care of myself and ski a lot with my son <laughs> and, and enjoy my new granddaughter and my wife and daughter. And, um, and so I, I've had some time off and I'm going to do a little part-time work. But in the meantime, uh, I thought I'd give you both my my recovery background a little bit as well as my professional background to, to see why writing that piece was so important to me um, and uh, and it's so important to me to be here to speak with you tonight and you know, there have there's been slow advances in brain research in regard to marijuana and addiction itself and understanding the neurophysiology behind it. Not much has changed in regard to what I wrote. Uh, in that regard, no big significant theoretical changes or, or research that's described something different than is in that piece. Uh, however, the as mentioned a little bit ago, you know, the increased potency of, of marijuana is really problematic. And in, in regard to the side effects. So that more common for people to get psychotic. Um, you know, intractable vomiting has become a common sort of thing in emergency rooms. Uh, there's people that have had um, such increases in uh, heart rate and blood pressure from, from smoking these really uh, high potency marijuana that they end up in emergency rooms with heart attacks. So it's just a lot of strange things going on that, that uh, had never been seen before. And also, when you look at the history of addiction around the world, and um, what you find is when, when a new substance is introduced to a culture who hasn't used it, or a new way of using that substance, like the best example is crack cocaine, suddenly smoking it, um, or there's a remarkable change in potency of a substance, which we're experiencing with marijuana, the addiction rates really do go up pretty significantly. And, and it's especially problematic for our youth, you know, because historically there's been national surveys of, of youth and adults actually, but mostly this is in regard to youth uh, looking at their perception of risk associated with all kinds of drugs. But when they looked at marijuana, 
they could map it over like a decade or so. And when perception of risk increased, use of by adolescents decreased. And when perception of risk decreases, use increases. So as you can imagine, with legalization all over the country, perception of risk has decreased dramatically among our youth and, and use is going up. And, and it was too predictable. And I actually, I actually come down on the side of legalization because I, I, I had a friend who got caught at dealing some bags of marijuana to friends like me, you know, and, and um, was put in prison and had a pretty rough life as a result of that. And, and the, you know, so it's neat to see the Biden administration now taking some of these issues on. However, I voted against it. I live in Oregon. I voted against legalization there because they didn't protect our youth. They did nothing to try to help understand that there is risks associated with marijuana use. One of the main one is that some of us get addicted to it. Only about 9%, but probably higher with these new forms of the high potency. You know, so it's not a lot. It's not a vast majority don't become addicted to it. We're just the lucky ones that do, you know, and then find recovery. Um, and I, I wanted to just also mention one other thing, and that is that uh, if, if your parents are planning to be parents, you know, the number one risk factor for addiction of any kind is genetic. And, and so you know, as a parent, I, I told my kids about my recovery and I told them about the risks that they faced because for parents, uh, if someone has a parent that has this disease, it doesn't matter what drug or alcohol or whatever they were addicted to or what, for me, what multiple substances, you know, um, at least a six times as likely possibility that they'd be they're going to become addicted and so they need us to help them through that they need us to love them to care for them they need us to be good you know stewards of recovery and to live the best lives we can because that's about the only thing we know now that can reduce it, that they face because of so that's the last thing i wanted to say in regard to comments and, and i'm glad to take questions and so for alcohol itself they've they've never gone through anything like this and so so marijuana anonymous is really facing this in a way that i don't think other groups have before i don't know about the cocaine anonymous folks when crack cocaine came along and smoking cocaine became so popular um but you know this is a a big change and oh I mean, in some respects, it may help, you know, produce enough discord that people will find their way here quicker. But it's also going to happen for people that aren't addicted, um, and that that's actually more more common, even because they're just naive to this stuff, and then they take this really potent uh, um, drug, and suddenly they're in trouble. It's more likely to happen in people that have a family history of psychosis too, but. Um, in a general way, I suspect we're going to see more people entering marijuana anonymous worldwide because of this potency issue. 
There's a question in the chat that asks, are there any studies of long-term medical effects of prolonged marijuana use, even in people who are no longer using? And, and there's a lot of studies that are ongoing and, and the difficulty with studying long-term marijuana use in a research setting for medical you know, um, issues is that such a high percentage also smoked uh, tobacco. And, and so when they try and do the studies and, and ferret out the tobacco users, they end up with so few people. And, and so it's been hard to get this kind of data up to this point in time. It's they're getting uh, larger and larger groups that they are studying and, and those studying long-term effects takes a long time, right? It can take uh, years and decades even to really understand some of these things. So there, there's evidence of, you know, and concern about the possibility of lung cancer. Um, and yet it hasn't been proven partially because of that tobacco effect and partially because it's, if it is happening, it's, it's not, that common, I suspect. So it's it's been really hard to figure out. So there's still suspicion that that is a possibility, but uh, no absolute proof. And then then some of the brain changes, um, you know, the cognitive changes, like um, memory in particular. I, marijuana really nailed my memory badly, I, <laughs> but for short term periods and. Ultimately, it came back. Um, and I, I remember when I first got sober, and, and mine is clouded by, you know, other substance use as well, but, um, you know, memory and marijuana go together. Methamphetamine causes extreme memory problems as well, but way worse than marijuana, actually. Um, but only for people who really use that a great deal. Uh, but for me, I, I was sober six months and working in the same place where I would go down the elevator and go to the cafeteria and go to these machines and get something to eat out of them pretty much daily, if not a couple of times a day. And six months in, I went down there and realized I didn't have to think about how I got there for the first time. I mean, so, and then when I started college, uh, which was six months after that episode, um, I had great difficulty initially. I had trouble with all my first tests. I just couldn't remember things. And, I was, and part of it was not knowing how to study. Um, but by the end of the semester, so coming up on a year and a half, I was really doing well. And my memory really came around. And, and that's the primary experience that's described in the research, that we have short-term memory problems as a result of uh, marijuana use and, and not a lot of lasting problems, although there, there is that potential and there's, they're studying that in an ongoing way too. I hope that's helpful. I'm curious how you would answer the question, either as a doctor or a person in recovery, for the claim that marijuana is simply not addictive. Oh man, yeah, it, I mean, you know, it's, it's just plain false, you know? <laughs> It is addictive it, and all, almost all the substances uh, that we get addicted to have had proponents that, that, that they're not addicting, right? And um, it's, I think it's both, you know, comes with the territory that in the midst of this addiction, we don't recognize it. 
And once we really have addiction, we certainly are going to argue that we don't have it. Um, but also uh, societally, people don't understand this disease and they just think we should be able to stop. So they don't even, a lot of people don't even understand that this is a disease and that addiction happens. They just think that we, we don't know how to handle it. Um, and that's still pretty prevalent uh, perspective. But the research is pretty solid. You know, that there are people who do get addicted to marijuana. Absolutely. Uh, no question about that. As we define addiction right now, and then you know, those definitions have changed over time. But um, in spite of the changing definitions, it was it was more an attempt to refine um, how they defined addiction. And there was no real change in you know the fact that it exists even for marijuana. Marijuana is a pretty powerful. Uh, you know, medicine basically. When you when you think about, we have an internal cannabis system. They call it an internal cannabinoid system. It's responsible for all kinds of uh, neurologic activity, mostly in our brain, but also throughout our body, and, and and in controlling nerve function, really finely fine tuning nerve function in a lot of ways. And so when we when we do use THC, it's overdriving that system that already exists. It, it doesn't just randomly make us high. Um, and, and as a result, it's, it's playing a role directly on brain receptors and, and brain function. And, you know, the whole description of addiction of any kind to any substance and even the non-substance addictions of functional addictions, um, uh, the same the parts of the brain involved remain the same for marijuana as for the other substances. Um, when I first started sponsoring an MA, uh, we were just walking people through the steps and we weren't dealing with people who were on, you know, medic uh, psychosis medication or dealing with a therapist or, you know, we're not trained therapists, we're sponsorship and so, or we're sponsors, excuse me, and other members in recovery. So I'm wondering if you could address some tips and tricks or how we might work with people who are coming in with, more things that a sponsor should be doing. Sure, yeah, glad to. Um, since most of my career has been on that side of things, when people have psychiatric aspects of, of substance use disorders or addiction, um, I've worked with a lot of sponsors over the years uh, in that capacity, and it, it's helped me kind of understand how to differentiate those sorts of things. And if people have psychosis, it's important uh, that they see trained professionals that deal with psychosis. And, and I think sponsorship is about recovery, but also about supporting them and doing what's right for themselves physically, mentally, and spiritually. And, and so on the mental side of things, if, if they are having difficulties with psychosis, and especially if it's lasting, um, into recovery, getting professional help is, is really necessary. Um, it's too difficult for, uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's an odd thing. I remember in my psychiatric training, I, you know, I'd never, I'd had my own experiences with, you know, hallucinogens and, and, and with marijuana, I was hearing things regularly for a while at, you know, late at night, that sort of thing, hallucinations. So, had my experience with psychosis, but 
I, I knew it was the drugs because it didn't happen at any other time. I just assumed it was anyway. I didn't know which one. Um, but the first time I was in a psychiatric setting in my training and saw someone responding to the, um, the heater, the heat ducts in the room and talking to it as if he was having a conversation, I was really surprised by that. And, and, and it's, you know, psychosis basically is a fixed false belief, you know, and if it's fixed and false, it's, it's hard to manage, you know, for that individual and for anyone that's trying to help them out. And, and we're trained to do that. We can use psychotherapies and medications to help people with that sort of thing. And, and, and they'll be a lot better off in the long run. So I'd say the sponsorship about helping them, you know, find a route to address those issues and, and not try to do it oneself. I, I think it's, it's fine to discuss one's own history of such experiences because I think that's really helpful for them to hear that it isn't unusual and, and that you can get help for it. Uh, in in uh, the doctor's opinion, in the big book, uh, Dr. Silkworth talks about the two components, the, the mental obsession and the uh, physical, uh, physical allergy, the, abno the abnormal reaction after the substance is ingested. Um, you know, I'm, I'm down with the mental obsession. And I have, once I smoke, I want to smoke more and more and more. Is, is, there, a, uh, is there a medic, is there a marijuana equivalent to this phenomenon of craving, this physical aspect to the addiction? There, there is. It's not, you know, in regard to physical, it's, you know, we, when we think in terms of withdrawal, alcohol withdrawal, of course, much more obvious and much more dangerous. Um, opioid withdrawal, much more obvious than marijuana withdrawal. But marijuana withdrawal can, can be measured physiologically and, and, and has been described pretty readily, especially with these higher potency uh, THC substances available. And, um, and yet, when you know, when I read the doctor's opinion in the AA text, I absolutely as well agree with the mental obsession. And, and I can't come to groups with the allergy, the term allergy, because it, it just doesn't describe it well. I think, I think it's an old understanding of that term. And, and I've, I've heard other physicians speak to that and, and really um, come to a point of saying, okay, allergy works if you use this really broad, vague definition. And, and that's about the only way it, it does work. Um, and it, and it, that would be a nice thing to update because right now, what in describing the course of addiction, you know, because most people don't become addicted. Most people use these substances without getting caught up in it like we do. So, um, and like I said, the genetic risk factor is the biggest risk factor. There's environmental risk factors like abuse, uh, stress, you know, those sorts of things that also play a role. A, a psychiatric illness itself puts us at higher risk for addiction. Um, but when you look at the neurophysiology behind it, there's there's been an increasingly accepted theory that suggests that um, that 
kind of the benefits or the high associated with any of these substances, the intoxication itself, that's, that's basically positive reinforcement. It feels good, so I'm going to do it again. And, and people that use socially, and people like us, the early in our careers of, uh, of our use, man, I loved it. I mean, I wanted more. I wanted to do it again. I wanted to try this drug and that drug. I just couldn't get enough. And then it turned on me. And it became increasingly painful, both psychically and physically. Um, and by physically, I mean more of a psychic kind of thing. But it, it's, it's like uh, now the description is that casual use, recreational use, and early use in addiction is all about positive reinforcement. It still works. It still feels good. And we pursue it because it does just like we do great food, you know, good chocolate, whatever. Um, and yet we cross this barrier, this line or whatever, and it becomes a matter of uh, negative reinforcement. And negative reinforcement's definition is the relief of, of pain. Um, we, we do it again because it relieves pain. And for me, that pain was, you know, just the shame and guilt of my behavior. Um, I couldn't stand myself anymore. couldn't stand what I was doing to those around me. And yet I couldn't do anything about it. I didn't know what was wrong or what I could do. And, um, and then there's the, the withdrawal aspect of it. When, when we stop using or even when we um, are between bouts of using or for certain things, even just overnight, we start to go into minor withdrawal. And there's this angst that occurs. It's, it's, it's kind of like a, a mild depression and anxiety com combination that just, you know, fills us. And, and um, we want to go back for more and get that relief. And, and that's how they're starting to define addiction itself and crossing that line from you know say social or at least not unhealthy use to addiction is when it goes from something that continues to reinforce in a positive way to something that's about relief of the pain and and, and i think that's a a real useful way of looking at all this how do you work with newcomers that are on medication i have heard of a gabapentin um, and it, it helps, it's, it can be helpful for, for some people with any kind of withdrawal, actually, from, from all of the substances, and, and thus uh, also for marijuana, it can be beneficial. It, it's usually not something that, if that's the issue, and it's being used for that purpose, it's usually not something that needs to be lasting, um, you know, for, for months, even. So I'd say that uh, and it, if it's used for anxiety disorders that are separate, though, that could be a useful long-term uh, medication for people, relatively safe in recovery. It, it has been misused in really high dosages, uh, mostly by healthcare professionals because they have access to lots of it and can take lots of it. Um, so, so there is a downside to it as well. Yeah, in my when I attend you know, meetings, 
I do not try to uh, help people with their medications. <laughs> and I don't speak to that stuff. I'm there as an AA member, MA member, whatever. And, and, um, and so when people ask me about that stuff, I'll, I'll provide information, but I won't provide them with any kind of decision-making. And I'll suggest that they go and speak to their healthcare professional, their psychiatrist, their psychologist, whatever, um, especially if it's medications that, that, you know, talk with their prescriber about those issues. And, and if they're seeing prescribers that don't know addiction, which is really commonplace, because, you know, the truth is right now in medical school, even though this you know, addiction as a whole, if you look at all the substance use disorders, um, affects, uh, you know, as many people as any disease, basically. It's very, very common. It's, it's one of the most common reasons, uh, one of the most common illnesses seen in primary care. Um, and yet, in medical school, four years of medical school, on average, there's still about 24 to 48 hours devoted to this disease. And in general, less than one week in almost all medical schools. It's starting to change a little bit with the, the opioid crisis. But if people get that in their training, and once they become specialists, then they get nothing about it unless they're in psychiatry, you know maybe in a family practice program or at a place where someone on the faculty is in recovery or real interested in, and, and does some teaching so that they really finish their training with hardly any information about addiction and recovery and what that means. And so you do want to see somebody that actually has that background uh, in one way or another, if they've trained in addiction with a fellowship, if they've you know, done other training uh, related to addiction, or if they're in recovery and have a special interest in it as a physician um, or nurse practitioner or whatever, you know, that, and, and it's hard to find those people, but it, it's, it's necessary as a sponsor, as, as friends of people in recovery to help them find the right folks, because it, it's real easy for them to get into trouble with the wrong folks. You know, they'll get put on benzodiazepines, you know, like Xanax and Ativan or Valium or Librium or something commonly. Uh, a lot of docs don't understand that that just isn't a good idea and can be really harmful and problematic. Now, someone like me, uh, with this being kind of my expertise, this combination dual diagnosis, basically, um, on a rare occasion, and I, I haven't done it for years, I'll put someone on a benzodiazepine that, that nothing else works for because they have such severe panic attacks or something that they absolutely have to have it. And, and, and that requires going through a whole evaluation process and, and making sure that they've had multiple trials of other means of addressing that situation before we take the risk of putting them on something like that. And, you know, my colleagues that don't have that background, they, they don't even think about such things. They just kind of go for the, the quick answer, basically, and what they would give to anybody else without even thinking about the addiction because they don't know it. Now, when I say that about physicians, psychologists, there's no specialty in addiction in psychology. 
that's also a, a problematic area. There are certainly people that have taken an interest in it and learned a great deal about recovery that are psychologists. Nursing, the same thing. There's no good training for nursing. Social workers, the same thing. Yeah, so our whole um, medical workforce is ill-prepared to deal with, with our disease, basically. Getting better, getting better. There's, there's been an attempt to develop addiction fellowships around the country, uh, and, that, and they've been able to add fellowships. That means they're training more people specifically in addiction. Nurses are getting more training and, and even having um, like a, a specialty track they can do now. And, and a lot of mental health programs for psychologists and social workers are adding courses and, and training in addiction. Um, but in a general way, it's it's still pretty abysmal. All right. Well, um, we, we have come to a close for our time for now. Uh, if any, any of the, I see a lot of great questions went into the chat. Uh, if any questions went unanswered, feel free to send them on to um, hospitals and institutions at marijuana-anonymous.org.